continuing our journey through the book of Romans. We'll be reading verses, chapter 1, verses 16 to 32. And the title of the sermon is Portrait of a Godless Society. We're going to focus our attention on uh, verses 26 and 27 for the most part. We're not ignoring the rest of the text. But we're going to talk about homosexuality and lesbian activity because it's culturally in our face. We need as Christians to know what the Bible says and how we're to respond to these things. We shouldn't uh, hide, shy away from them, bury our heads in the sands. These are realities that we're dealing with in our culture. And uh, the comforting thing is these are realities in Paul's culture too. And he knew how to handle them. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. 
Over the past 20 or 30 years, America and Western culture in general has witnessed a sea change in sexual ethics, particularly in the areas of lesbian, homosexual, bisexual, and transgender practices and identity. We have a military base here in Columbus, and some of the, uh, the, the more... Um, uh, change, the changes that occurred in America that were um, that we were made aware of through media came about in the context of our U.S. military. This started to change and make headlines in national media in the early 90s. Up to 1992, homosexuals were not allowed to serve in the U.S. military. So the whole U.S. military had a particular stance on this moral issue. 1992, uh, or in 1993, Bill Clinton introduced what many of you are familiar with, the don't ask, don't tell policy. So we're going to kind of allow this to happen, just secret, don't tell anyone. 2000, or 1993. So this is all very new teaching and ideology for our nation. This don't ask, don't tell was a way of kind of easing restrictions, turning the blind eye to what was deemed immoral. By 2011, Barack Obama lifted the ban on homosexuals serving in the military, made it legal for homosexuals and lesbians to be open and outward in serving the military. Now, the first Western nation to legalize gay marriage was the Netherlands in 2001. By 2004, the first U.S. state recognized, legally recognized, uh, homosexual and lesbian marriage, and that state was Massachusetts. And again, that was in 2004. It was only in 2015 that our Supreme Court legally recognized gay marriage in this country. Five years ago. Not that long ago. Media and pop culture have aggressively pushed to normalize LGBT relationships and identity. How often when you're watching TV and you see a commercial, do they include a homosexual or lesbian couple? It's becoming pretty regular. They're trying to push the normalization of these things. And especially if you are a teenager in our congregation, we as the church need to provide material to help our teenagers, our college kids, because they are entering a thought world that thinks that these things are just normal and okay. And, and in fact, it would be morally reprehensible for you to say that they're not. That's the culture our kids are growing up and going into. Are we as a church preparing them for that? Let me just take this back a stage. Nowadays, it is unthinkable almost for Christian young people 
not to live together before they're married. They don't even understand that morality that's taught in Scripture. Has the church failed them? Have parents failed to instruct their children about the morality that the Christian faith holds to? So media and pop culture have aggressively pushed to normalize these relationships. Mainline churches, such as the Episcopal, Presbyterian Church, USA, and United Methodist Church, have recognized practicing homosexuals and lesbians as members in good standing in their churches. No need for any form of discipline. And some of these churches have also allowed clergy to practice these things. This is a hot topic. Uh, And I understand that, and I know you understand that as well. There's a great deal of social pressure to keep quiet if you disagree. As Christians under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, how are we going to respond? Well, Paul tells us. If we are serious about our Christianity, that is. Uh, Are we prepared to suffer some persecution over our positions on these things? I think that may be coming sooner than we think. First point I want to make is an apostolic critique of godless society. And the second point I want to make is an apostolic approach to engaging a godless society, with particular reference to the LGBT issue. An apostolic critique of godless society. What Paul is doing in Romans 1, 18 to 32, is he is exposing the sins that are characteristic in a pagan society. He's not saying that everybody in that society is practicing these things. He lists a whole bunch of sins, particularly in the last few verses of this chapter. But he's saying societies that allow for these things are at a a deep level of godlessness. It's the logical flow of the rejection of God in a society. It's interesting, isn't it? When you read Romans chapter 1, Paul wrote this a long time ago. But you, you, you can't help but make the connections to what we are facing in our society today. It's almost like Paul wrote it for us. Paul based his argument bases his argument on natural revelation. You see, he's aware that the the Gentiles, they're not the people that God gave his scriptures to. They don't have the written law. But they do have creation. All human beings have creation to look at and to study and to examine. So, Paul bases his argument in this section of Romans on natural revelation. Things that can be known about God and His moral standards that are learned through the observation of the created order itself. Things we can learn, if you want to put it this way, scientifically, uh, through the study of the created order. Look at verses 19 and 20. We see him making this abundantly clear in reference to idolatry and atheism. Paul simply thinks 
that it is foolish to deny the existence of God. But see, we're, we're led to believe that it's foolish to believe the existence of God. That's what the, the, the narrative is for us. No, you've got to stand your ground. It, it makes perfectly good sense to believe that a being that is far superior to us made this world. That, that makes logical sense. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that if you give time, things can just randomly happen and create order and beauty. That just rationally should be jarring to us. That's Paul's argument. Listen to what he says. Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. How? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So Paul's argument here is he's holding the Gentile pagan world on trial. And he is proving their culpability, their guilt. He's saying, you are at fault before the judgment throne of God. And here is the abundant and ample evidence to prove it. That's what Paul's doing here. He does the same thing in his discussion of sexual ethics with particular reference to homosexual and lesbian behavior in verse 26. Listen to what he's doing. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations, what is known in creation. They exchange what is observable naturally. They exchange that for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Paul says these are self-evident truths that people are willingly choosing not to obey or to believe. All human beings, Paul will argue, and we'll look at that here in a minute, all human beings have an innate sense of moral right and wrong. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul states this. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the written Scriptures, by nature, by God's created design in them, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. The Bible argues that that human beings, because we're created by God, the law of God is written in our hearts. We know truth. So Paul says these are self-evident truths. All humans know it is wrong to do these things. Why? Look at the list he gives us starting in verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to to their parents, foolish, faithless. He goes on. 
Why does he pick homosexuality and lesbianism to focus his attention on? Why not grab one of these other sins and highlight them? Why does, why does he spend so much time on the particular sins he discusses in verses 26 and 27? God's wrath is against all sin. Paul isn't saying that homosexuality and lesbian activity is, uh, if you don't do those things, but you do these other things, you'll be okay. No, the wrath of God is against all of these practices. Now, lesbianism and homosexuality are highlighted for this reason. Because in comparison to all of those sins he's listed... These, these sins contradict the natural order more clearly than others. Even pagans hesitate to engage in these particular sins. They are so clearly self-evident that they are contrary to human design. That's why Paul focuses on them. That's why he focuses on idolatry. It's so clearly foreign to religious ideas. Paul's purpose, as I said in the introduction, is to expose human guilt. To show that the Gentiles are without excuse. Like a lawyer in a courtroom, if you're, if you're arguing a case in law, what do you want to do when you think about, you may have a hundred pieces of evidence What are you going to focus on? The strongest evidence. The most clear evidence. That's what Paul's doing. He's got a lot of evidence to prove sin and guilt. But he wants to focus on that which will engage the mind of his hearers more readily. That they can relate to and see fault in. The human reproductive organs. And I want to be delicate. I know we have children here. But if you're an adult... Follow the reasoning path here. The human reproductive organs are designed naturally for male-female partnership. It's pretty clear. It doesn't take a lot of effort to draw that conclusion in the study of the natural order. Biology, study of human anatomy, confirm this. Robert Gagnon, in his book on homosexuality in the Bible, writes this. For Paul, it was a simple matter of common sense observation of human anatomy and procreative function that even pagans had no excuse for not knowing. This, the, the promotion, the championing of homosexual behavior is cl- a clear case of the pagans willfully suppressing truth. And I want to say 
we need to be very careful that we don't buy too much of the narrative in our country today. Even today, such views as Paul is speaking of and we are feeling in our culture, they are deemed abnormal. This is not the normal view of people in the world in 2020. We just need to take time to do a little research. Of the 197 nations in the world, only 30, only 30 legalize gay marriage. Only 30. And all of that since 2001 when the Netherlands started this off. Of those 30 nations, they dominate what is known as the Western world. You find them in North and South America, but not all of South America. Just a few nations. If you, uh, just, this is how absurd it is. Let's say you have a, a gay marriage here in America and you want to go to Mexico to celebrate your honeymoon. You go to a nation that doesn't recognize your marriage. That's how absurd and confusing and strange things are. You get a job in Mexico and you want to move there with your partner. Guess what? They're not going to recognize your marriage performed in America or Canada. Why? Because in Mexico, they're looking at biology and anatomy and saying, how can we legalize this? Clearly, this is not acceptable. Of those 30 nations, they dominate the West. North America, South America, Europe, Australia. And if you look at Africa, there's one nation that allows it. South Africa. Every other nation in Africa is opposed to it. And the only thing keeping the United Methodist Church together on this issue is the African United Methodist contingent. They are fighting forcibly against the, the desires of that church. Now, there's 7.8 billion people in the world. <clears throat> and if you take those nations that I mentioned... It represents 0.8 of the world population. Seven billion people live in nations where this is not accepted. And even in America where it is legalized, there is still a large proportion of our population that disagree. It's interesting to me that when you look at Europe, the former communist Eastern European nations almost unanimously are opposed to legalizing same-sex marriage. And the reason I find them interesting is because they're from a communist bloc that were aggressively anti-Christianity. So they're not basing their views on Scripture. What are they basing their views on? Natural revelation. They just see it, not from a religious point of view, but just common sense, natural order. So don't believe the narrative being pushed down your throat in America today. 
Even in our world, what is taking place in America is not the norm. Only in a deeply godless society is such a sin championed, cheered on, protected, and promoted. In verse 28, we're told, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. This is His judgment upon them, the outpouring of His wrath. He gives them up to doing things which the rest of the world looks at and says, what are they doing in the West? If you wonder why Islam may be gaining some traction, because they have morality. They have a strong sense of morality in their religion that people gravitate to. This is the height of rebellion. Verse 32, Paul says, Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They make them moral norms. And if you challenge it, then you are the one committing sin. What makes someone that has been, what makes something that's been accepted as immoral in the West until 2000, what makes it now something that's acceptable? What's, what's going on? As Christians, our ethics are shaped by our Lord. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. Why do we not believe in this? Well, I mean, we could argue the, the natural argument and say, well, just it doesn't fit nature. But as Christians, we should simply say the Bible says it's, it's sin. And I'm happy with that because the Bible is my foundation. You may disagree. We, maybe we can have a discussion about what your foundation is for your moral decisions. But what I believe in is there is a God. And He created the world and He knows what is good and what is not good for the world that He created. So, it's that simple. Why do we believe it? Well, the Bible says so. And Jesus is my Lord, so I'm going to do what King Jesus says. Not what the American media tells me, or some minority yet loud group in America tells me. Think about the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil back in Genesis 3. What was the purpose of that? What was God testing with Adam and Eve? It was a test of Adam's commitment to God. It was a test of whether Adam would submit to the Creator or would want to determine his own standards for moral right and wrong. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, don't eat it. Now, do you want to do what God says? Or do you want to do what the devil says? Or do you want to do what you say? Do you want to determine moral right and wrong? And what does Adam do? So this is the the core fundamental sin of our race. We don't want to do what God tells us. We want to decide. We want to determine moral right and wrong. The shift is a clear rejection of the Creator. And that's Paul's argument. Morality in the West is on shaky ground. Why would we accept 
the shift in sexual ethics. Tell me why. Challenge your your unbelieving friends who bring this up. Tell me why we should change our view. Why is something that was once wrong now right? Well, is it majority rule? Is it the loudest voice determines what we do, even though it's a minority voice? Is it this sense of morality that protects human choice? Well, if you're based on any of those grounds, they're subject to change at any moment. Your morality is shaky. One generation may believe this. The next generation believe that. Wow. Do you want to live in that society? Give me clear moral decisions, moral authority that comes from God over that mess any day. Sinclair Ferguson, speaking on this issue in a talk he gave at Ligonier Ministry, says this. Ferguson says, if you think about it, The moral disintegration there has been in the Western world over the last 25 to 50 years. We no longer know what it means to be a man or a woman. But it's happened very logically. Because when a society removes God from the situation, it inevitably removes the truth about man from the situation. Because when we remove God, we take away our identity. We are image bearers of God. Who are we? Male, female, we are image bearers of God. And when we take God out of the equation, he says, sadly, we no longer know who we are. Everybody has to make up their own identity because we don't know who we are. Paul's argument is there is no excuse. Self-evident, you're guilty based on natural revelation. You deserve to be under the wrath and curse of God. And the Jews are probably cheering this on. They don't know what's coming in chapter 2. He's about to turn his attention to the religious folks who think they've got it all figured out because they're not doing these things. And he says, guess what? You're under the wrath of God too, you proud, arrogant group of people. So he's not letting anybody off the hook. No excuse. Now, the second point I want to bring up a little more briefly is an an apostolic approach of engaging a godless society. What do we do when we live in a world where there are people who are practicing these things? We need to look to Jesus. We need to look to the apostles. And we need to learn from them very carefully. Why is Paul mentioning this stuff here? What's he, what is his goal with the Romans? He wants to preach the gospel. He wants to preach the good news of salvation. Paul wants the homosexual and the lesbian and the people who practice all of these sins towards the end of the chapter to be saved. He wants to love his neighbor who is a practicing homosexual or lesbian. Paul is no homophobe. And the Christian church should be ashamed if we ever become that.
In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, turn there. Paul's giving instruction about how we live in society with people who are our enemies, people who don't share our moral ethics, people who uh, worship idols, and all of these things. And, and listen to what he says in Romans 12, verse 18. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. With all. And then he goes on to talk about how we treat our enemies. In verse 20, he says, Don't execute vengeance on them. He says this To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Show love to those who don't share your positions. Paul is, like I said, no homophobe. And and in fact, I think he would pronounce severe judgment on a church that was homophobic. I think he would be outraged by that. In 1 Corinthians, now it's believed that Paul, or in, yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, it's believed that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans from Corinth. And this is what Paul says. We as Christians, we need to speak the truth. Okay? We don't need to be shy. We don't need to be overwhelmed. We don't need to be bullied by our society. We need to speak the truth about these issues as we're doing this morning. And I would say this about the PCA right now. Every General Assembly, we pass more legislation, if you want to put it, to strengthen our position on this issue, to make it clear where we as a denomination stand. There's a document, if you want to research it, it's a a study committee that uh, has released its information. I think you can find it on one of the PCA General General Assembly site. You can read for yourself. The, the document that will be before our General Assembly next summer that we'll be voting on. Very solid biblical teaching. And I'm encouraged by that. But we need to speak the truth. We don't need to shy away from what we believe. We need to stand our ground. But we need to do so graciously, winsomely, and wisely. Listen to what Paul says In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, he's going to speak truth, but he's going to give us some information about that 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 I think is helpful for us. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he lists a whole host of sins. Then in verse 11 he says this, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. So in the Christian congregation in Corinth, you had drunkards 
who experienced the power of God unto salvation. You had adulterers who experienced the power of God unto salvation. You had homosexuals and lesbians who experienced the power of God unto salvation. Paul persuaded, argued, and won them to Christ. The apostles and Christians in the early church didn't resort to rioting, to mob violence, in order to change the sexual ethics of the Roman world. They didn't mock or ridicule their enemies. They preached the gospel. They reasoned. They persuaded. In Acts chapter 17, verse 17, we're told that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and in the marketplace with the Gentiles every day. He tried to give them argument after argument after argument to persuade them that their position was wrong and that the gospel was God's gracious remedy for all of these moral problems. He argued, he persuaded, and he challenged. He lived out the principles of Christian conduct before them. The apostles in the early church, they engaged the culture with strong moral arguments that challenged the status quo. He preached the gospel. I want to leave you with an example of this. How many of you are familiar with Rosaria Butterfield? Anybody heard of her? Okay. If you haven't heard of her, I want you to get familiar with her over the next week or so. You can order a book that she wrote called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It tells her story of how she became a Christian. But let me tell you who she is, or who she was. She was a liberal, lesbian professor at the University of Syracuse. She was a rising star in that position. She was a practicing lesbian. And this is what she says about her view of Christians. This is what she thinks of us, or what she did think of us, and what a lot of people, you know, I'm convinced if this sermon was played before a group of LGBT people on a pride march, they would think we're the stupidest, most ignorant people in the world. This is what she says. I thought Christians were stupid, pointless, and menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. As, as a professor, professor of English and women's studies, on the track of becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. She was a very moral person. Fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality. And it sounds a lot like what Paul is saying here. 
in the final verse. Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, what happened to her? Well, she started to study the religious rite, and it made her start reading the Bible. So she starts reading the Bible, and she writes an article in a newspaper in in Syracuse, New York. And a Christian man, a, a pastor, reads it and writes a letter to her. And I think this is a Christian example of how we engage with people who share a completely different view of morality than us. It would grieve my heart if I were to hear of some homophobic slur uttered by a member of Main Street Presbyterian to a lesbian or a homosexual who came and worshipped with us or who was out on the streets. It would grieve my heart. I would think that's very unchristian of us. So what does this man do? Well, she describes him for us. She says... And uh, I should tell you the article I'm reading. This is from a Christianity Today article written in September 20, on September 27, 2020. No, that can't be right because that's today. That must be the day I printed it. Try that again. February 7, 2013. Called My, Re- My Trainwreck Conversion. And it's a brief article. You can get the full story if you get her book. So Christianity Today, my train wreck conversion. This is what she says about what what won her to Christ. And Paul was very good at this. He wasn't so good at it with the religious people. He kind of hammered away at them just like Jesus did. But the Gentile, immoral idolaters, he wooed and winsomely, lovingly drew them to his God. So, she says, it was from the pastor of Sycamore Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith is the man's name. Encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. And these were some of the questions he challenged her with. How do you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? What's the foundation holding together your worldview? Is it sand or rock? So he just queried her. He discussed. This was a long process. Took two years of Ken and his wife befriending this liberal, radical, lesbian professor. Did I mention he's from a Reformed Presbyterian church? Don't let that escape your attention. A long process of genuine love for this woman. She writes this. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. That, she says, that Christians who mocked me on Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as the blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. He loved her enough to have a conversation. He loved her enough to share his 
worldview and why he disagreed. Something else, she says, something else happened. Ken and his wife Floyd and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. And as a result, she became a follower of Jesus. She's now married to a pastor. Read her story. Get to know her. I want to leave you with this. With all of us, we, when we, we have sin, we're tempted to particular sins, it's not as if when we become Christians, those things just fade away. What we've got to realize is as, as homosexuals and lesbians are one for Christ, they need discipleship. They need sanctification. They need to learn the power of, the God, of God in the gospel to transform their minds because it doesn't happen overnight. Listen to what she says. I think these are the last, close to the end of, of her article. She says, when I looked in the mirror, this is after her conversion, when I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian? Or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could He make my true identity prevail? And Paul wants to say, I want to introduce you to the power of God for salvation. Let me show you the power of my God to reorient your view of identity and to wrap it in Christ Himself. To empower you to die to your old self and to be raised to something new in Christ. At the end, she says this, I have not forgotten the blood of Jesus surrendered for my life. And my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. She has to wake up morning by morning, just as you do, die to her sin and live to Christ. Because the remnant of sin remains in her heart. She still struggles with some of these issues. What a great joy it is for us as Christians to be commissioned by God to carry a message of radical transformation, gospel grace to a world that so desperately needs it. Amen. Father, we pray to you. We pray that you would mold and shape our hearts like you did the Apostle Paul, like you did this Pastor Ken and his wife Floyd, who ministered to Rosaria Butterfield. Lord, help us never to cave and never to to call uh, right wrong and wrong right. Help us to stand our ground, but to do so in gospel love. For this is what transforms worlds and societies and cultures. Strengthen us for the battle, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.